So Money Episode 751, Christine Lati, Oscar winner and new author of the book, True Stories from an Unreliable Eyewitness. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Independence Day. Hope you're relaxing, enjoying some barbecue, celebrating our independence, holding your family tight. I was wondering whether or not to air this particular episode today. Wasn't sure how many people would actually be listening to podcasts, but I'm assuming maybe if you're relaxing and you're by the beach, you're not at work, that you might enjoy a podcast or two. And so maybe no better day than today to air one of my favorite interviews of 2018. From miming for money in Central Park to winning an Oscar, our guest today has experienced an incredible climb in her personal, professional, and financial life. We're welcoming Christine Lati to the show today. You may know her from her roles in Chicago Hope, Running on Empty, Housekeeping, Swing Shift, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, The Blacklist. My goodness, Christine won an Academy Award in 1995 for directing a film called Lieberman in Love. She's been on Broadway. She has won a Golden Globe and an Emmy. She's also now an author. Her book is called True Stories from an Unreliable Eyewitness, where she dives into personal stories from childhood as well as her acting career, many stories she's never told. And we're also going to talk about you know, life growing up in the Midwest in the traditional patriarchal family, what she learned witnessing the financial dynamic between her parents, her mom, a traditional stay-at-home mom, how she then went on to scrape coins together in the early days of her performance career. Then we talk about the intersection of money and feminism and building a lasting career in the volatile world of entertainment. Here's the great Christine Lottie. Christine Lati, welcome to So Money. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to dive into your new book, True Stories from an Unreliable Eyewitness. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's my first book and um, I'm really excited about it. It is kind of a memoir, a series of essays that you actually started writing years ago because your daughter encouraged you, right? I read that that was something that was an inspiration that came from one of your children. Yes, I had hit um, the age of 60 and got hit with this um, tsunami of ageism in Hollywood as an actor. And the parts, the interesting parts, the really challenging parts were not coming my way. And I was complaining about it and, you know, feeling sorry for myself. And my daughter said, stop your bellyaching, mom, and go create your own stuff. You know, quit waiting around for some man to hire you and go start writing your stories down. And so I did. And I started performing them as monologues at first, thinking maybe I would create a one woman show. And um, now it's a book. And then hopefully I'm going to adapt it into a proper one woman show. 
Oh my gosh, I can see a movie, I can see a television series, and and right on for your daughter for encouraging you to do this. And I have read that this book is uh, about a lot of things. It's about life, it's about love, it's about career, it's about Hollywood, it, but it's also about your sort of um, evolution into feminism, being humming a feminist. Sounds like your daughter's already there. <laughs> oh yeah, I think she was born that way. Um, it took me, you know, I, I had no idea what feminism was until I was in college and got and thank God, uh, the, the, the women's movement, the second wave of feminism was happening. And I feel like it's been my life jacket um, for my whole life. I'm so grateful. And I think because of that, uh, you know, I raised a daughter with through the lens of feminism. And um, this book is about my journey as, as an imperfect feminist and how, you know, having inherited and internalized sexism and misogyny like we all have growing up in this culture, um, how I've, you know, gotten climbed back on and fallen off the feminist wagon many times. What is your hope for readers? Um, it's There's so many takeaways, timely takeaways, given the Me Too movement. You've had your own share of experiences, unfortunately. Uh, you also, though, talk about uh, your uh, migration to Hollywood and also um, aging and everything in between. But what is like the most the most special thing that 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 you wrote about that you hope if there's nothing else, readers will walk away remembering. You want them to remember this. I guess um, what I'm trying to do in in this in this collection of of life stories is really reveal and embrace my own uh, imperfections and the times when I, I messed up or, or, or failed someone or, you know, just didn't, you know, didn't, didn't live as a feminist, didn't act, I'm sorry, didn't act as a feminist. So that I think in, in writing about them, I've been able to kind of forgive myself. And then also in writing about relationships with my parents and my family members I've been able to in the writing I was able to find some healing and but really try as honest as I could be I wanted to tell my stories and then forgive myself try to forgive myself for a lot of imperfection and uh have you forgiven yourself yeah I think so it really was a healing therapeutic process to write this book it was shockingly so actually one of the passages um, I'm quoting now from actually the New York Times. There was a, everyone read this great interview with Christine in the New York Times, and it mentions an excerpt from the book you write about. It was about 1973. This is before your incredible career as an Oscar winner and an Emmy winner and a Golden Globe winner and Broadway. That you were in Central Park, uh, earning three dollars and thirty five cents as a mime. Talk, talk about grit, right? <laughs> it was short lived, but you still did it. And I did it, yeah. Take I me didn't back to that time. Who who was Christine then? Okay, so I graduated from college, spent one year working towards an MFA, and then hated the the training. So I I fled to New York and got incredible. It started enrolling in these amazing classes with Uta Hagen and William Esper from the Neighborhood Playhouse. But I had to waitress a lot to to support myself. And uh, 
I thought, how can I make some money in a more creative way? And I had learned some mimes. So my girlfriend and I went out to Central Park on a, the first day it snowed. The timing wasn't great. Nobody was in the park. And as, as you said, we made $3 and something and change and we had to split it. She, <laughs> played, she played the clarinet and I performed mime rather badly. Um, and I, I really was not happy as a mime. I didn't really see a future <laughs> as a mime uh, or any kind of financial security. So I, I just gave that up and pursued my acting and, um, and waitressing and then eventually was able to stop waitressing because I made money as an actor. What was your big break and what did you do when you got your first reasonable paycheck? Not $3.35, obviously. <laughs> I remember... Um, my big break. I guess I I finally did a got a national commercial, um, and I had originally sworn that I was never going to do commercials because I was an artiste and that was selling out. And but then I you know again I got really tired of waitressing and taking two jobs as a waitress sometimes, and I finally uh, acquiesced and decided that selling out would be just fine. Um, and I did a commercial for Joy Dishwashing Liquid. That was actually okay as a feminist because I was playing a coach to my son's little league team and I got to wear like sweats and a baseball hat and it didn't feel like such a, you know, completely cliched version of a housewife. Um, So (laughs) she at least had some kind of dimension to her. (laughs) And um, what I did, I remember buying, being able to buy a fan for my apartment, my studio apartment that had no air conditioning. And I, I felt so excited and liber and sort of liberated and independent that I could actually buy my own fan and put it in my apartment. And it just felt very adult buying that fan. And we've been talking about feminism up to this point. I mean, what I, I have this theory that really being financially independent as a woman is one of the best ways to practice um, being a feminist, right? Because if it's about having choice and freedom and equality, you need money. Yeah. You can't have someone else's money telling you what, what to buy or what not to spend on. I think financial independence is key to being able to live a a life as a feminist. I, I grew up with, um, a mother and father who were typically fifties, you know, patriarchy. My father was a surgeon. My mother was a stay at home, uh, mom. She raised six kids, but she never had her own money until much, much later in life. And I, I watched as my dad would take away her credit cards when she misbehaved. If they had an argument, I remembered like I write about it in the book. The next morning we we'd go out shopping and and I'd say, Oh, can we get this or this? And she said, no, honey, your dad took my credit cards away. Uh, And I said, why? She said, well, I misbehaved. And I thought she was treated like a child. And I just, it really scared me. And I just was determined when I got to be um, an adult that I would always be financially independent. And even to this day, I have my own business manager. I have my own Savings accounts, my own investments have nothing to do with my husband of 35 years. I love that. I love that so much. We also, in my marriage, we um, we, we have very, our own accounts. I think also these days as couples are marrying later in life and maybe coming with their own assets or children of their own from previous marriages, it's kind of this, the way it works. You know, you have your own stash and I like, I like that. It gives you autonomy in your relationship. 
Yeah. And also, you know, the fact that any woman is now changing her name to, to, to take her husband's name just seems so antiquated and, and sexist. And why, why would someone leave, you know, leave, lose their name, lose their money, lose their identity, lose everything in, in order to get married. That was, it just seems so strange to me that Mm. people are still doing that. Well, you mentioned learning a lot about money or at least what you didn't want your financial life to look like through the experiences, the witnesses of uh, your, your parents interacting with money. Was there ever a time when they actually spoke to you about money? There's a, a survey that our sponsor did recently, Chase Slate, that over half of the parents today have talked to their kids about money to some extent. But mm-hmm. what was there a conversation or a, a lesson or anything that they taught you? Um. No, I mean, they did, both of them, to their credit, told me that if I worked hard enough, the sky was the limit. And that hard work and being financially independent was going to be essential for for me to accomplish my dream. So that was a really great gift they gave me. But I don't remember them sitting down and saying, you know, here's how much you should save and here's any of that, those specifics. I do remember that um, my mom wanted money to uh, help my daughter out. Uh, Sorry, my mom wanted money to help my sister out, her daughter, uh, when she was struggling with um, severe mental illness and she wanted to give her some, you know, extra help and because my dad didn't want to. uh, And she would, she called me up and say, could you send me some money to help Linda, my, you know, my sister out. So I would do that. I would send her these secret checks so that she could give her whatever, you know, you know, send her things in the mail or help her out with groceries or whatever extra help she wanted to give her daughter. And she wasn't able to because she didn't have any money. So later on in life, she became a professional artist and started selling paintings. And that was an extraordinary thing for her to actually have her own money and do with it whatever she wanted. And what did she do with the money? I'm curious. I think she helped her kids. out. Yeah, that's so sweet. That is so sweet. Uh, Yeah. What is your proudest money moment, Christine, as you have built this incredible multi-revenued career, which I love because, I mean, that's also being an actor and a performer. It's, you know, you don't have a show for th- for 30 years, right? You have a show, then you have a movie, then you have a one-woman one show, and then you have uh, a year where you're not doing anything in some cases. So uh, I'm always asking guests, like, what was their so money moment, so to speak, like a time in your life where you really felt that you made a very smart financial decision? Oh, okay. Well, I bought a an apartment in New York City after my first movie. I think it was no, it was right after I, I did Swing Shift, and I made some good money on that. Um, it was maybe that was maybe my third movie, but I bought a really ugly, horrible apartment. But it was my own on West Seventy Seventieth Street, and was able to sell it maybe. 
five years later for a huge profit. And that was allowed us to, then I met my husband and we bought another place on West 86th street. And I think it was real estate and I wasn't savvy about it. I just got in at a good time and sold at a good time. And that was a, it was a really great investment. And I, I felt so proud of that. Like, how did I just make all that money? It's New York, baby. It's New York, baby. And it was a really ugly apartment. I mean, it's like one of those <laughs> did you Did you give it TLC? Did you renovate it? I didn't. Oh, I did actually. I did. I did some some changes to it. Little things like opened up a hole in the kitchen so you could put a little counter. Um, yeah, little things I did. But um, I love. I just felt so proud of owning this little ugly place and made it my own and made it really. Oh, what I used to do is you know on the Upper East Side, um, people put out trash right, and in those days it was. On trash day, you could find kitchen tables and chairs that maybe had a hole in them. But I would go around with my friends and we would gather up furniture for our apartments from the Upper East Side on trash day. And I remember um, I would have these chairs in my apartment and I would... um, They'd have holes in them in the cushions, but I would cover them with beautiful material that I had bought. And I would just pin them, you know, because I didn't really care about sewing. I didn't know how to sew. But I would pin them and then people would come over for parties and, you know, the pins would come up and some people got stuck with the pins. And it was kind of embarrassing. But I just remember thinking, well, at least it looks really nice. And it's free. And it's free. Exactly. So there's only one way up. There's only one way from here and it's up. Yeah, exactly. I can put a nice uh, pillow on this and, you know, stain removed. Yes. Oh, wow. Those were the days. Now you have to go to a consignment shop to find anything valuable that was left from someone in East, you know, Park Avenue in 79th Street or something. Right. Well, now antique stores are, you know, they're they're just gathering up that furniture and then fixing them up and selling them for thousands of dollars. I'd like to go back to your uh, smart decision to... uh, create something that was your own, which was this one woman show, this collection of stories, which is now a book, which is, I mean, you're, you've become the queen of parlaying. And I think that that is uh, brilliant. And it's not a coincidence. I think that we're seeing more women in Hollywood, big names like Reese Witherspoon and others who are uh, taking on their own projects. They're starting their own production companies and, and they're getting outside of Hollywood, right? They're extending their brands and their, their, uh, sort of fame to create opportunities in fashion and in retail and opening restaurants and being entrepreneurial. Is that the way to m- sort of make your career now? Because, because unfortunately, there still is uh, ageism and there still is a, a, f- a sort of an unfair advantage that younger actresses have over older actresses that you have to kind of come up with a a plan for the, for the later years? Yes, absolutely. Um, I remember being at the height of my career in my, I guess, late thirties, mid thirties, late thirties. And people would say, well, are you going to start a production company? And, and I would say, no, I'm, I'm not entrepreneurial like that. I'm just an actress. So that's part of my, you know, less proud moments as a feminist, but I just didn't, I didn't know anything about that. And I, and I teach younger women, um, acting classes. And when I'm teaching these classes, men and women, but I particularly say to the actresses, you know, you have to be able to write, direct, produce, act, you have to do everything right. You know that. And they, and they always say, 
well, duh, I've already got a web series. I've already written a short film. I, you know, I'm directing that they're already so empowered. These, these millennial women. And my daughter is a perfect example of that. And I feel like because they, a lot of them were raised by feminist mothers, they have that sense of, of course, I'm going to take my career into my own hands and not be dependent as an actor, you're so dependent on other people hiring you. So yeah, I'm a late bloomer in that way. And I am producing now I am developing material for myself, I want to uh, direct more and create more opportunities for women tell stories that aren't being told about women, particularly older women. So yeah, I feel right now that I'm now I feel entrepreneurial, but it took me, you know, a long time. You described a little bit about the dynamic you have in your marriage, the financial dynamic. Um, go there with us a little bit more. I'd love to learn a little bit about how you and your husband, if you do have um, money talks or if there is uh, more to your dynamic that is worth sharing. We'd love to learn from you because it sounds like you have a good system down. Well, at first it was, um, I was making way more money than he was. I was um, getting these movies and he was just starting out and directing uh, commercials for off-Broadway shows. And uh, so it was a real imbalance. And, um, you know, we kept a ledger. Like I I would, (laughs) I really wanted it to be 50-50. But he didn't feel threatened that I was making more money and I didn't feel odd about it. I thought it was kind of fantastic. And then as the years went by, it shifted. And then sometimes he would make a lot more money than me. And then we stopped keeping a ledger and it was like, okay, this is just going to be our life together. It's going to shift. Sometimes it's, I'm going to be paying more of the bills and sometimes you are. And our business managers would talk to each other and okay, well, this year is a pretty lean year for Christine. So why doesn't Tommy take over, you know, a little more of the mortgage, whatever. So that's how it's been for us. We've just been, um, you know, trusting that, it's going to be shifting for both of us. We're both artists and, uh, you know, we'll take care of the bills accordingly, but it's been really a partnership financially, really, a you know, good uh, collaboration in terms of our building our financial life together. That's great. And you have separate business managers. That seems like, uh, is that advantageous or is it, um, does it create extra layers at times? Um, it's, it's been important. I don't know. I might create extra work sometimes, but it's been important for me to keep my finances separate. I did finally um, this year take a lot of my investments and give them over to Tommy's, my husband's investment guy, so that that's all under one umbrella. But um, I still maintain, you know, all my my bills and finances and everything with a separate business manager. I just, I just, that's just important to me Mm. and will always be. And you think it's rooted a lot in your childhood? I I think for me, a lot of the decisions I make now as a 38 year old mom, and I'm also the breadwinner in my marriage. It's not, it's not accidental. It's a lot of it is the conditioning that I had as a kid growing up. Absolutely. Again, I, I really think that unless women are financially independent, uh, that there is, it's a lot harder to have, to really have a, have any freedom in your life to, to live as a empowered, equally human person. Yeah. And, and I'll even go so far to say that that means for those who opt out of the workforce to raise their kids. I mean, there has to be a re-entry strategy, please. 
Yes, a re-entry strategy. And by the way, why aren't housewives and mothers who do give up their careers, there, maybe there should be some salary involved in that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I don't know how you do that, but I just, it always seemed weird to me that my mom wasn't paid for raising six kids and maintaining a house and providing well, meals. No one can afford her. That's the truth. It's well, a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Of, she's worth, she's worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're right. You're right. And to have her credit cards taken away because she, you know, that's just really sad. And that was such that image or that, that. Well, money was power in your mom's and dad's relationship. It sounds like it was a a way to wield power. Completely. But it was real. She also, even if she wanted to ever leave him, I mean, they had a loving relationship, but they had problems like everybody. And even if she ever, I mean, I think about women who, who are physically abused and can't get out because they don't have any kind of financial independence, mm-hmm. right? They don't have a plan to, to support themselves. And that's really scary. How many women stay in abusive relationships because they don't, they can't leave. Yeah. They're not in a safe place, which uh, means they have to leave, but also they can't, it's not that easy. That's right. I mean, where are they going to live? Of course they are their shelters, but you know, how realistic is that? How scary is that? And yeah, I just think it's, it's just so important for women to at least have some kind of stash put away or some kind of income coming in, even part-time. I'm so excited to open true stories from an unreliable witness. You need to give yourself more credit, Christine. Well, that title is meant to be a little tongue in cheek. I know. but yeah. <laughs> um, It is. It, it, it is about memory, that title. It came from um a story that I was writing about and I was, it was a story about my dad kicking our mother out of the station wagon on a family trip in Chicago. There were six kids in the car and my dad kicked my mom out of the car because she was smoking and he hated it. And he, you know, he was a, a, a surgeon and he had worked on, he had, um, had all these lung cancer patients. He was, he hated smoking, but so he kicked her out of the car and I remember him driving away and I just am sitting in the way, way back. And I see my mom's body getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm thinking at eight years old, I'm never going to see her again. Well, oh my God, oh my God. And I recounted the story to my brother and sister as I was writing about it. And they had no memory of it. Mm. And they were in the car. And <sighs> so it's just about, you know, that title relates to how memory is so subjective. And, and especially these big emotional memories that I write about in the book, it is they they are my memories. They are the most honest that I can be about my childhood, about my growing up as, you know, in show business as a feminist, but it is so subjective. And that's why that I say that, but honestly, I mean, I mean it tongue in cheek in that because I am attempting to be so honest, I'm actually, I think a very reliable narrator. As they say in Hollywood, inspired by a true story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Christine Lottie, thank you so much. Tell us where we can find you next on the big screen, on the stage. Um, I wish I could I could talk about a, a, a play I'm 99.9% going to be doing. I'm so excited about it, but the deal hasn't closed, so I can't mention it. Um, maybe by the time this airs, I there will, there will be some news and you can announce it, but uh, I can't say anything right now about it, but I'm really excited. 
Well, we, of course, will follow you and we'll have all of your links so people can keep up with all your busy projects and your next steps. Congratulations on True Stories from an Unreliable Eyewitness. It's going to be my one of the few books that I'll actually get to read this summer, but I'm going to add it to the list. Thank you so much and have a great, great night. You too. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this talk. Thanks so much to Christine for joining us. And her book, again, is called True Stories from an Unreliable Eyewitness. It is everywhere where books are available. You can also follow her on Twitter at Christine A. Lottie. If you missed any of this, just hop over to SoMoneyPodcast.com. If you want to share this episode with friends, you can grab it there. You can also download the transcript. You can also send me a question for our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh by clicking on the Ask Farnoosh button. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money.